Here it is. I found it. Well, let's pray before we get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we just, we ask for your spirit and your presence and your touch in our lives, Lord. And as we open up your word this morning, we pray you would speak to our hearts, Lord, and that you would stir our souls and you would, that you would draw us ever closer to you, Lord. We pray that in your name. Amen. Well, we spent, I don't know, four or five weeks in Acts chapter 10. So um, in order to keep on schedule, we're going to do, I'm not pulling you guys, we don't have a schedule. Um, but I am going to do all of Acts chapter 11 today, just so you guys know where we're going. Um, so starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of the Lord. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men. And ate with them. So, despite there being no social media or newspapers or telegraphs or semaphores or, or anything of that nature, gossip still traveled around. Right? It still made it. <coughs> word of word of what happened there in um, in Caesarea got back to Jerusalem, <coughs> and. So the people learned that Peter and some of the other believers were, were hanging out with the Gentiles and that the Gentiles were believing in Jesus. And again, we need to remember the cultural context here. I know we've talked about it before. But in the mind of the Jew, there were two groups, right? There were Jews and there were non-Jews. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And remember the Jews in the Old Testament they were called the chosen people. They were God's special people. But over time, remember, the, the Jews came to understand that because, or came to believe that because they were better than everyone else, or because they're God's chosen people, they were, they were better than everyone else, and, and that God loved them more. And, and they got to the point where they believed that God hated the Gentiles, that God only loved the people of the covenant. And Remember, we saw that that's was, that wasn't what being chosen meant. Being God's chosen people, remember, it meant that they were, they were God's representatives to the rest of the world. They were chosen to be a light shining in the darkness. We saw in Exodus 19 that God's people were called to be a kingdom of priests. They were called to be middlemen, middlemen between God and the rest of humanity. And there are, are, are many verses in the Old Testament talking about how Israel was supposed to be a, a, a light and a voice to all the nations on earth. <clears throat> but in those days, remember, the only way a Gentile could enter into the covenant of God was to convert to Judaism. And, and that involved circumcision and, and keeping the law. And even if a Gentile did all of that, even if a Gentile converted to Judaism, even if they, they were circumcised, they still were kind of subjugated to a, a, a second-class status. 
They didn't have full access to God under Judaism. And so this is the mindset that Peter is ministering in. And word gets back that Peter is ministering to the Gentiles, to the, to the pagans, and that they were, they were coming to the Lord. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Those believers who were of this group that believed that you still had to be circumcised, they began to rise up against Peter. And it's important to note, I think, that not all the believers had an issue with this, just this particular group. And kind of what we see is it's a, a, a little denomination forming, right? The, the party of the circumcision. The apostles and the rest of the brothers, when they heard this, they didn't have an issue. It's only this little group that had an issue. And this group, the party of the circumcision, it seems that they were believers, they were real Christians, and, and initially anyway. They were saved, they were born again, they were spirit-filled. But this group would kind of drift away, and they would get further and further into this weird law, works-based theology. And um, Paul would later go on to, to call them Judaizers. And, and, and as their theology progressed, they began to believe that if a Gentile wanted to be a follower of Christ, Right? Jesus was the, the Jewish Messiah. So if they wanted to follow Jesus, that's great. But they had to convert, convert to Judaism first. And then they could follow Jesus. And so they were very critical that these Gentiles were, were skipping what they viewed as this, as this key step. They were following Jesus without converting to Judaism. Right? And it didn't make sense to them. How could you... How could you be a Christian without being circumcised? It's like saying, you know, how can you have a cheeseburger without cheese? Right? It, it, it doesn't make sense. It didn't, it didn't compute in their minds. And so there's this storm here that's beginning to brew against Peter. And we're going to see in a few chapters that, that Peter kind of caves to this pressure a little bit. And for a period of time, he starts to separate himself from the Gentiles until... The Apostle Paul confronts him and calls him out on it. And I think that most of us today here are probably familiar with the history of our, of our church. And I don't mean necessarily Calvary Chapel Edmonds, but kind of Calvary Chapels on a whole. And new people come in and, and you notice something a little bit different. You know, we typically, we don't dress up for church. Most guys aren't wearing a suit and tie, we're pretty, we're pretty casual. You don't see a lot of ladies wearing big church hats and fancy dresses. <clears throat> In the summer, you know, guys are wearing shorts and flip-flops. And, and, and that's kind of part of our, of our church culture, culture of, our, of our church heritage. So I want to share a little bit kind of our, of our history as a church as it, as it pertains to this text. Calvary Chapel initially wasn't a a group of churches spanning the globe. It was one small, little, basically dying church in Costa Mesa. It, it was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until there was just a, a handful of, of, of senior citizens there. And a new pastor came in, a younger guy, Chuck Smith. And this was in the 60s when the, when the hippie movement and that whole counterculture was really in, in full swing. And, and there's this whole 
cultural revolution that's going on. And the young people of that day were, were looking for something different. And, and the mantra of that era was, was turn in, tune in, and drop out. And, and people, the young people were, were tired of, of the establishment. They were tired of the status quo. They, they wanted something new. And so young people were experimenting with all kinds of Eastern religions, with Hinduism and Buddhism and, and a lot of this stuff. And it was during this period that a couple of these young hippies came to the Lord. And they started going to this, this church, Calvary Chapel. They got saved and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. But they still looked the same on the outside. Right? They still had long hair. And they were still barefoot. And, and, and the people in the church, a lot of people in the established churches in those days, they were cool with that. They were cool with people getting saved and coming to the Lord. But once they were Christians, they needed to look like Christians. Right? They needed to cut their hair. And they needed to dress right. They needed to wear shoes. They needed to take a shower before coming to church. Watch all that patchouli off, you know. And, and, and there's a story that they had just put in new carpet at Costa Mesa. And, um, and some of the elders were complaining that they didn't want all these barefoot kids in there destroying the carpet. And as the story goes, Chuck Smith told the elders, look, we'll tear out the carpet. I'd rather have these kids getting saved than new carpet in the church. And before long, thousands upon thousands of young people were coming to the Lord. They were getting saved. And the church grew so fast that they had to buy a, a giant circus tent for the church. And this was a, a genuine movement of God. And this movement, it spread around the world. And, and church historians look back and they call it the, the Jesus movement. And they refer to these people as, as Jesus people. And today there are, are thousands of Calvary chapels around the world and, and many more churches that, that look like Calvary. They're very relaxed in their, in their church culture. And initially when all this was happening, a lot of Christians were very critical. You know, look at these kids. How can they be Christians? How can they be saved? They're not... They're not converting to our church culture. They don't look like us. They don't dress like us. They don't talk like us. They don't worship like we do. They, they, they must not really be saved. And this was a great movement of God. This was the roots of a great revival. Lives were being changed. People were being saved. But guess what? A lot of the a lot of the, the good religious people said that this movement, it was from the devil, right? It's, it's not really a movement of God because they don't look right and they don't act right and they don't dress right and they don't smell right and they don't worship right. And this is the exact same thing we see happening here in Acts chapter 11. God is moving. God is changing lives. God is, is pouring out his Holy Spirit. And some of the believers were like, how can they be Christians? They don't dress like we do. How can they be saved? They don't talk like us. They don't go to the temple like we do. Look, they're over there. I saw her eating a BLT. How can she be a Christian? 
I saw him mowing the grass on Saturday. How could he be saved? And so this group within the church rose up against Peter. And they say, look, you're hanging out with Gentiles. You even ate with them. And that was unthinkable. That's like the worst offense. How can you eat with a Gentile? You don't, you don't mix like that with Gentiles. You, you don't contaminate yourself like that. But in verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. In the next few verses, Peter shows exactly how this, this whole thing went down. He sort of reviews it. And it says that he explained it to them in order. And that's an interesting term in the Greek. It carries the meaning of sort of a, of a systematic, precise retelling. And I think this is important to note here. Remember in those days, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have Bible apps. They didn't even have books, right? Everything they had written was written on scrolls. And in order for a scroll to be mobile, you couldn't have more than about 35 feet on a scroll. And so when books were written, they, you know, they didn't write novels, you know. It was, I mean, things were typically written short. They were brief. They were to the point. Because everything that needed to be communicated needed to be quickly communicated, and paper or the vellum that they wrote on was expensive. So typically, a book from that era would have said something like, and Peter told them what happened, and not have given them the details. If they wanted to see what happened, they'd have to roll the scroll back a little bit to Acts chapter 9 and to Acts chapter 10 and read what happened. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, felt that this account was important enough to repeat it, to rewrite it, even though he had already written what happened twice before. The Holy Spirit felt like this story was important enough to be relayed a third time to us. And it says in verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. So Peter says, look, I was in Joppa, I was praying, the Spirit came upon me, God gave me this vision. And in the vision, I saw this, this sheet lowered down. And on this sheet, it was full of swine and camels and lobster and bats, every kind of unclean animal. And the Lord said, go ahead, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter, relaying the conversation, he says, I said, no way, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. Since I was a boy, I've, I've always kept the law. And the Lord says, I have made it clean, Peter. Who are you to call it unclean? Three times this whole thing transpires, just to make sure that Peter really gets it. And... Remember in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, 
Peter finally does get it. And he says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anybody as impure or unclean. It's interesting to me that this series of events that's taking place here in Acts chapter 9 through 11 is taking place in the same place where the book of Jonah began. Remember in, in the book of Jonah, Jonah's there in Joppa, and the Lord tells Jonah, he says, look, I want you to go to the Ninevites. I want you to go to the Assyrians, and I want you to proclaim my word there. And remember, Jonah, he wasn't going to have any of it. And so he got on a boat and went to Tarshish. He, he headed off to what was probably modern-day Spain. He, he headed off in the other direction because he didn't want to see the Gentiles get saved. He didn't want to see the Gentiles experience the grace of God. And here, Peter, like Jonah, initially, he resists a little bit. But as God continues to speak, he listens. And so Peter says, look, God has shown me that things are about to change. That things that we thought were unclean, that people that we thought were unacceptable to God, he is bringing them into the family of God. And we need to receive them as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they're culturally different than we are. And here we begin to see these, these, these social and, and ethnic and racial walls, they begin to, to fall down. They begin to be torn down by the gospel message. And Peter goes on in verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So right as the vision was wrapping up, three men show up. And Peter says, look, the Holy Spirit told me I was to go with them. So I was there and I took these, these six brothers with me. And we went to visit this man in Caesarea, this Gentile man. And when we got there, he began to, to explain how an angel had appeared to him. And the angel told him specifically to send for me. And so I went. And I love how this, this story unfolds. This, this Gentile man, he knew that there was something more. He wanted to serve God. We find him already helping the poor, doing good deeds. But he knew that that, that wasn't enough. And there was, there was something missing in his life. And here's why I think that's significant. We hear all the time people say things like, you know, what about all the people who never heard of Jesus? Would a loving God really send them to hell? We talked about that a few weeks ago. How, how people will say, you know, it, it's not fair. How can God send people to hell who never heard of him? And I think that this is partly the solution to that question. This guy was doing the best that he could with the knowledge that he had of God. And God found a way to get his word to Cornelius. 
those who seek God will find God. Something interesting. I read some years ago the story about this missionary, and he, um, he went to the Middle East, and he was doing ministry among this, this Bedouin tribe. And he began to share the gospel with them, and he told them about Jesus. And as he began to explain the gospel message, the people say, look, we already know this. We, we've been having visions for some time. An angel already told us this story. We just didn't know his name. And so I was looking last night trying to, um, trying to find the, the specifics of that story, and I couldn't find it. But as I was kind of typing in some of the parameters, you know, People in the Middle East have vision of Jesus. There was a huge list of, of all these occurrences of, of Jesus or angels appearing to people in these, in these regions where, where there's no church. And, and the Lord is, is revealing himself in areas where there's no missionaries, where there's no one to proclaim the gospel, where people are afraid to share their faith. People are getting saved because there's these visions going on. Someone will show up at a house church and say, look, the Lord revealed himself to me a dream and he told me to come here tonight at 7 o'clock. And it's amazing the things that are going on. And, and I typically, I'm kind of skeptical of stuff like that. You know, when I, about 85% of the time when I, when I hear people talking about miracles, I'm like, yeah, yeah sure it is. But, but this, this seems to be a legitimate move of God going on. And this, this stirs my heart that, that people are getting saved and, and God is working where, where men are, are unable to communicate the gospel message. God is at work finding ways to save people. That should stir all of our souls. And verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of God. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he has given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter says, look, I went into this man's house and, and I began to speak. And I hadn't even finished my sermon and the, and the Holy Spirit was poured out just like happened to us in the beginning. He says, remember back at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on us. The same thing happened here in Cornelius' house. God was moving in the same way. God, the gospel message, wasn't restricted to us, Peter says. It wasn't restricted to people like us. God is moving among all men. Peter says, I remember what, what Jesus said, that John baptized with water but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he said, this is what happened. The Holy Spirit began to be poured out. God was moving. God was doing the same thing in their lives they did in our lives. Who was I to stand in the way of the work of God? Peter says, look, did you guys want me to, to, to try and stop the Holy Spirit from filling them? Right? How exactly do you propose that I do that? Why would I want to do that, Peter says. And Peter sort of puts them in their place here a little bit. In verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
When the Jewish believers heard this, they stopped objecting. They saw what the Lord was doing, and they had a change of heart. And I like this. They were willing to change directions. And that's what repentance means, right? To change directions. They were willing to change their ideas. They were willing to change their their thinking. They were willing to change their attitudes as the Holy Spirit moved. And I think that this is the mark of a true disciple. That they were willing to repent. They were willing to repent of their wrong attitudes and wrong actions. And they were willing to learn what the Holy Spirit wanted to teach. That word disciple and koine is methetes. And what it means is a student, a learner, a follower. If, If we are proclaiming that we're disciples... What we're saying is that we're students of Jesus, that we're followers of Jesus. And so often we say that we're students, we say that we're followers, but when it time, comes time to, to, to learn something new, we like stiffen our necks and, and we don't want to do that. The Lord starts moving in a new direction and we don't want to do that. How can you be a follower of Jesus if you don't follow his leading, if you're unteachable. And I'm not saying that you're a bad disciple if you're unteachable. I'm just saying that you can't be a disciple at all if you're unteachable. Because the the hallmark of being a disciple is teachability. That's what the word means. And we see these disciples here, they were willing to learn. They were willing to to make some course corrections. And we look at their example, and I have to ask myself, am I I willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Or are we so locked in that we don't want to change directions even when the Lord starts moving in a new way? Or are we flexible? Are we willing to bend as we sense a, a new leading from the Lord? Are we willing to repent as we sense the the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If the Lord shows up and He wants to do something new, if He wants to move in a new direction, if He wants to change the course of our ministries, if He wants to change the course of our lives, are we willing to change directions? Are we willing to change the way we think? Are we willing to change our attitudes towards other people, towards other ideas? Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So at this particular time, there was persecution rising up against the church. It had started with Saul, and it was continuing on. And so many of the believers had fled Jerusalem, and they had fled Israel altogether. And some of them, Scripture says, went to Phoenicia. Some of them went to Syria, to the northeast. 
Some of them fled southeast to Cyprus and, and to Turkey. And a lot of these believers, they took root here in Asia Minor. And, and that region is really where the, where the Gentile church began to be established. Right? When Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 writes the letters to the seven churches, they're in that region there in Asia Minor. And as the, as the believers spread to these areas, they took the gospel message with them. But initially, they only shared the gospel with other Jews. And so the church was growing, but it was confined to the Hebrew community. And after this event here with Peter, some of the Jews began to share with the Gentiles as well. Peter sets this example, and the others around him start to follow. And I think that there's an important lesson for us there. A lot of us, we have this circle of Christian friends and family. We have our own little Christian community. And a lot of times we find that we're not really on fire for the Lord. Not really doing much for the kingdom. We find ourselves sometimes just kind of stale and stagnant. And do you know what it might take to get your little circle motivated to serve the Lord? It might take you. It might take you beginning to set a good example, beginning to serve, growing passionate about the Lord, about the gospel, growing passionate about sharing your faith. And as you do that, it may well happen that your friends begin to follow and it starts a revival. You know, that's what's happening here. Other believers were inspired by Peter and their faith was stirred up and they began to emulate what he was doing. And as we see, things begin to happen. And verse 21, And the hand of the Lord is with them. And a great number who believe turn to the Lord. We see God is at work here through the power of His Spirit. And a great number of people are getting saved. A great number of people are coming to the Lord. Lives are being changed. People are being transformed. In verse 22, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So the main church at this time is still in Jerusalem. It's sort of the, the mothership, right? And, and they kind of hear what's going on. They hear that there is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit there in Antioch. And they want to make sure that everything's on the level, that everything's on the up and up there. So they send one of their most trusted guys, this man Barnabas. And Barnabas, he arrives there in Antioch, and he sees all that's happening. He sees that the Spirit is moving. He sees the evidence of God's blessing on the people. And he's filled with joy. He's happy to see the Gentiles getting saved. There's, there's no resistance on his part. And so he stays, and he begins to encourage the believers and teach them. He, 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 he disciples them. He instructs them in the faith. And more and more people are coming to the Lord, and and the job starts to get too big for him. Barnabas just can't do it all. So verse 25, 
Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Here's what I like about that. Saul, at this point, wasn't really trusted. They accepted him as a brother, but the church at this point apparently hadn't really embraced him, right? Nobody was, he wasn't at the top of anybody's bar mitzvah invitation list, right? He was kind of at arm's distance. But Barnabas, he sees this guy, and he has a a, a questionable background at best, right? But Barnabas, he takes a chance on this guy, on Saul. He takes a step of faith. And he gives an unlikely guy a chance. And look at the result. Look what happened. He became the greatest missionary of all time. Writes half of the New Testament. And I know we've talked about this before. But I think the lesson here is sometimes we need to take chances on unlikely people. We need to give unlikely people an opportunity to be used by God. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas, he says to himself, you know what? Saul, he would be good working here with this church. And he goes to Tarsus, he hunts him down. And remember, it's been a number of years since we last saw him. It's probably been between 10 and 12 years since that Emmaus Road incident, or not Emmaus Road, the road to um, Damascus, the Damascus Road incident. And um, so he's, he's been kind of, just hanging out for the last 10 or 12 years, studying the Word of God, hearing from God, defining His, his, his Christian doctrine, right? He's, he's just finishing up 10 years of Bible college. He's just getting his MDiv here. And, and it says they both began to teach. And many people are coming to the Lord. And an interesting note, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Up to this point, they've been referred to as as the way. And we mentioned this a couple weeks back. That term Christian, it means little Christ. And initially, it was was kind of a mocking term. Oh, there goes that little Jesus. But over time, the the church began to wear that as as a badge of honor. And the believers became proud to be identified with Christ. But another thing that's interesting... They were first called Christians. Before they were called Greeks, before they were called Romans or whatever, they identified as Christians. And that is such an important lesson for us. Before we are whatever you are, before you're American or Mexican or Ethiopian or whatever nationality you are, you're a Christian. Before you're a conservative, you're a Christian. Before you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or whatever designation you choose for yourself, you're a Christian. We are disciples of Jesus. We're followers of Christ. 
first and foremost before anything else. It says, for a year they met with the church. Sort of an interesting side note for students here. This is the first time that a church, an independent church, is recognized outside of Jerusalem as its own sort of separate entity here. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the day of Claudius, in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there's this guy, a prophet, named Agabus. And he stands up and he proclaims that there's going to be a, a, a famine that's going to affect the whole of the Roman Empire. And the believers there in Antioch, they, they take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And it says that the believers determined to give each to his own ability. And I think there's two things that we can learn about giving here. First, the believers determined to give. I, I think that's important to note that there has to be a decision made. We need to plan for giving. We need to work that into our budgets that we're going to support missionaries or that we're going to support ministries or, or whatever. Because if we don't plan for that, you know, make a line for that in the budget, it doesn't end up happening, does it? Second, it says they gave according to their own ability. Each person gave what they were able to give. Now, a single mom with five kids who gives $50 in the offering, right? that's a different thing than a wealthy Wall Street hedge fund manager who gives 50 bucks, right? I mean, it's a, it's a different amount. I mean, on the books, it's still $50. But, but the heart behind it is different, right? And, and I think that that's kind of what he's talking about here. Giving isn't just about the numbers. It's about our hearts and the condition of our hearts when we choose to give. So the church, they take up this collection and they send it back with Saul and Barnabas. And remember, there's a famine coming. Israel is a, it was kind of at that time a semi-desert. It was a little more vegetation than it is today, but it was still a, an arid area. The church there was already poor. Remember, if you became a believer, you were basically cut off from society. You weren't allowed to go to the temple. A lot of Jews wouldn't do business with you. So, so the church was already feeling a lot of economic pressure. And so this, this gift from the church in Antioch, it was a, a great act of kindness. And I think that it went a long way in and kind of allaying some of that suspicion and, and unifying these two groups of believers. This, this act, this, this, this offering, right? I, I, I think the Jews in Jerusalem said, look, these guys, they're, they're okay. They love us. They're looking after us. Sure, they're Gentiles and Hellenistic Jews, but, but they care about us and they, and they love us. As we, as we close out chapter 11 here, 
really as we close out chapters 9 through 11, it's really all one story. It's really all one narrative. We see the Lord breaking down these walls that separate people. Three times the Holy Spirit relays this message of of breaking down barriers, breaking down a a, a culture of, of prejudice and division and mistrust. And we look at that, and I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, what what barriers are we putting up? What limits do we put on, on who we're willing to serve, or where we're willing to serve, or how we're willing to obey the Lord? Scripture is clear that Jesus died to save everyone. How can we in good conscience limit who we want to minister to and how we want to serve. Lastly, we see here that the gospel was spread throughout the known world primarily because of the persecution that was taking place. It was persecution that spread the people of God across the Roman Empire. It was this external pressure and danger that caused the people to disperse. And as that happened, the gospel was proclaimed in more places. Their witness grew. The gospel became known to more and more people. Now, I'm not Agabus. I don't know what the future holds for us. But it seems to me like we are living in uncertain times. It feels to me like there could be persecution coming. A lot of churches are already starting to feel pressure. And should that happen, should persecution arise, don't let that snuff out your light. Don't let that be a detriment to your witness. Rather, use that as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Use that as an opportunity to lift up Jesus. The darker it gets, the brighter the gospel shines. Let it shine. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for the lessons that we're able to pull out of this passage. We pray that you would help us to apply them to our lives, Lord. That we would be lights shining in the darkness, Lord. That we would be humble, teachable servants, ready to do your will and to do your bidding wherever wherever you call us. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.